0: Hi friends. I'm Abby Feeder, Certified Life and Fertility Coach, and you're listening to The Fertility Chick. This show is all about the path to parenthood, which is never the same for everyone and our guests' professional success along the way. Today, we have three guests in one. We have Maya Grubel, Jen Vespit, and Gina Davis, not the actress, but best name ever. And they are the founders of Empower With Moxie, one of the pieces of IVF and fertility treatment in general that we don't really talk about is what happens to embryos once we are done with treatment. And after the three of them went through their own journeys through embryo donation on both sides of it, they created Empower with Moxie, which is a huge educational platform and uh, embryo donor matching service. And they talk about what it was like to form the business, what it was like to be embryo donors, embryo recipients and really how to talk about and navigate this piece of the puzzle with people that we love in our life. Please enjoy the ladies of Empower with Moxie. Okay, I'm so excited you guys are here. Welcome, Maya. Welcome, Gina. Welcome, Jen. I'm so happy you're here. Yeah, of course. You have such a beautiful unique niche in the space. And I can't wait for everyone to hear your stories. So why don't we start with your personal stories as that is the foundation of this business. Um, And Maya, why don't you start us off? Tell us how you got here.
1: Thank you for having us, Abby. Um, Yeah, I so I'm Maya and I am I'm a licensed clinical social worker um, and a psychotherapist in the field of reproductive medicine. but i think yeah in terms of my personal journey i my husband and i did everything that reproductive medicine had to offer <laughs> basically we did ivf we did iuis my sister donated eggs to us at some point in our process and we landed on embryo donation as being the next best option um what i didn't realize is that it would significantly change my life in multiple ways um both per, both pers- personally and professionally and um, I will say that we have an eight-year-old, now eight-year-old daughter through embryo donation. And um, and it led me to Empower with Moxie, which is our embryo donation support matching and education platform that I know we'll dig into today. Um, and of course, led, led me to my two work wives here, Jen and Gina, so that we can facilitate some of this work together. Um, I guess I'll also share that I did make a documentary about my journey to parenthood called one more shot. This was, we're coming on 10 years now that when I started filming, cause we were just talking about it, but um, it was, you know, it's sort of my trauma narrative <laughs> out on display. But what was really interesting about sharing that we got very lucky. It was on Netflix for two years. Now it's available on Amazon on demand or Amazon plus, I guess it's called Prime, God, I can't even talk. Amazon Prime. <laughs> um, but what was really interesting is that after that, the film came out. Uh, we got emails from people all over. I mean, really, all over the world, because it was in all English-speaking countries, offering embryos to us. If you mm-hmm. need it, if you're having one, a second child, and I was, I, I was completely baffled because that was not how I landed on embryo donation. It was very clinic-based. It was very. Um, what we call non-directed now or um, non-identified, which is another word for anonymous. So it was just a very different landscape um, years ago as it is now. And it's sort of a shifting landscape, as we could probably talk about as well. But anyways, I I was just profoundly touched by people offering this, this part of themselves to help others. And the idea that families can be connected through the genetics of their children um, in this really unique way. So anyways, they got me thinking about embryo donation and led me to my two beautiful partners and starting this organization together. And um, yeah, I'll let them share their stories. Unless I'm forgetting something. We can now all speak to, we joke that we're all going to be kind of buried in the same urn or (laughs) living in the same (laughs) (laughs) urn, occupying the same urn. So anyway. um, Well, at some
0: point I want to talk about We can get there, but I want to talk about what your experience was like when you came to the decision that you were okay with using your sister's eggs, Oh, even though that's not how it turned out. Um, And it is in the documentary And, and the documentary, to be honest, Maya was being given an award one night and I was invited to the award ceremony and I hadn't heard of the movie. And I like crammed it in that day. And I was like, how did I not hear of this? Like, it was so good and so resonant. And I'm so glad I did, because it turned out we had one of the same fertility doctors and same fertility acupuncturists who were also at this gala. And I was like, Oh, thank God, I didn't show up looking like an idiot tonight. Um, Which I might have, but I tried not to. And there is some talk about that in the documentary. But I can tell you from other people we've had on the podcast and clients that I work with, the donor process and we can get more into this with embryos as well the acceptance of what it might be like to not have your genetics and how that hangs on you when you're making the decision and oftentimes the after and you guys I'm sure can all speak to this it's just it's like not it's such a non issue anymore so just pin that for now we can get more into it but in the meantime I would love to hear Jen your story how you got to empower
2: Yes. Thank you. Um, gosh, my story, I feel like I've told it so many times now. It's interesting. Um, We love telling our personal stories, not because we love to hear ourselves talk at all. In fact, we're sick of hearing ourselves talk, but because we feel like, um, you know, it really connects us to people that are going through, you know, the infertility process um, because we've all been there. And also when it comes to embryo donation, like you said in the beginning, it's such a niche area. So um, I am the short version of my story is I am um, mom via IVF. I have twins that are now 11. Um, Yes. Yay. Um, Before conceiving the twins, I did go through, you know, other IVF. I had a miscarriage. I, you know, really got to a point where I was like, what am I doing? How will I become a mom? Went through depression, went through, you know, just really feeling like my emotions and finances were stretched. Um, And so at the end, though, of our second IVF, uh, I did get pregnant with twins, and at the end of that, we had one frozen embryo. We did the typical thing that you hear from people who eventually become embryo donors, and that is just continue to pay for storage um, for years, obviously. When you're, you know, a mom to newborn twins and even toddler twins, it's it, for me it was a little bit too much to think about, you know, what will we do? Additionally, because I only had one remaining embryo, I think for me, the decision weighed on me in a different way than it may have if I had had more, which you'll hear from Gina in a second. And that's her story. So after, you know, years of paying storage, when the twins were around four is when we really started having the talk about what to do with the remaining embryo. Um, At the time I was married and my husband wanted to donate to science. um, And that didn't feel quite right to me, um, mostly because like I just said, I had been through my own journey, my own struggles, my own depression, all of this. And I really felt like trying to help somebody else become a parent um, was my calling after what I had been through. And it gave some Purpose, I think to the pain, that's at least how I felt about it. So in the end, and after debate, we did agree to donate our embryo. Um, We chose to go outside of our clinic because our clinic was not offering an open directed program. So we went outside of our clinic and found um, several interested families. um, And we landed on one. Um, We are a West Coast based family, and we chose a single mom by choice that's living in New York. And um, went through the process of donation and she became pregnant and she gave birth to her son about um, when my twins were five. So uh, the process went pretty quickly once we decided to donate um, throughout the process of choosing what to do with my remaining embryo and then navigating the emotions that came with donation i felt very alone i felt like who else is out there that's talking about this so um, my degree is in counseling, and I'm a nationally certified counselor. So, what I decided to do just on my own time was start a website for um, embryo donors and started talking about it. And I offered support groups for people that were considering donation or had donated and were navigating the emotions. So, I was in the space doing that. And that's really what led me to meeting um, Gina and then Maya and forming Power. So amazing. Um, I want to talk really quickly
0: before we get to you, Gina, about with Eugen, when you weren't able to go through your clinic, were there resources available on like, where do you go to donate an embryo?
2: Uh, There were very few. Um, There were a couple resources that my clinic gave me. So this is about this is in uh, 2016. So we're coming on, you know, 10 years ago. Um, But what I found is even though there were some areas you could donate, there was no education, Um, no talking about, you know, the actual decision, what it may feel like. And so that really is what I felt lacking not only education, but also community. So yes, there were resources for donation, but no, there wasn't support. And so that's why at Empower, we're so passionate about offering that education and support along with now we do matching as well. But we really took gears to sort of create this foundation of education and support before we moved into the matching space.
0: I love it. I love it. Okay, Gina, my love, tell me your personal story.
2: Yeah.
3: So I have been a genetic counselor in reproductive medicine for my entire career, you know, right after college, I went and worked in a fertility clinic, um, and then later on became a genetic counselor. So I've been working with patients that are trying to build their families for my, you know, really since my, since college and was never really expecting to become a patient, but, you know, we know the stats and turns out I was one. Um, my husband and I, when we um, started trying, um, we, you know, kind of we were. were I was at um, UCSF at the time. I was at a. I was my. That was where I worked, and and um. So my. So I kind of like had an in with all the doctors there. Really, some amazing doctors. Um. And eventually had to go through IVF. Um. I'm kind of skipping ahead, but you know, fertility journeys how they go. Um. Eventually had to go through IVF and really stimulated much better than I kind of anticipated. Much better than I was really prepared like thinking about. So I kind of felt like I won the lottery. We ended up with 18 embryos. um, And yeah, and um, we ended up our first transfer resulted in our son who's now 12. Um, So when I when as soon as I had him, I thought, you know, I, I, we were unexplained infertility. And so I was kind of like, there's this whole guessing game of like, maybe there's something else that's going to go on. But once I had a, once I had a child, I was like, that's 17 embryos. That's a whole lot of embryos. And really I was starting to do the math and thinking it through. And in terms of my parenting, what can I offer children? What is the right thing to offer children? What do children need? You know, what kind of parent do I want to be? And so I really landed pretty quickly on my bandwidth is going to be two probably. I already knew that. We ended up transferring a second embryo down the line. And so now I have an eight-year-old daughter. Um, So I have two. And as soon as she was born, I was really like confident that we were going to be donors. And it took me a while to find um, the way I wanted to do it because I, again, I was embedded in a clinic. I really understood what was out there and the mechanics of it, but I didn't understand the emotions in the same way. And it really, it shook me and made me see the gaps in the space a lot differently and made me you know, it really set me off on a a pathway to find Jen. I was finding what she was writing and talking about um, and then eventually Maya. um, And then we discovered that we really had a lot to offer the three of us because of my genetic counselor lens um, as well. Um, In terms of my donation, we decided to donate, um, in a known way after all my, you know, kind of, I went deep dive into this, all this stuff. And again, I had to go outside of my clinic as well. Um, when I, um, reached out though, funny thing, I reached out to family members to get updated family medical history because I was going to provide the best family medical history to any, any child in any family because that's what I do. I'm a genetic counselor. Um, and, it kind of turned out kind of be serendipitous because I reached out to my whole family and one of my uncles on my dad's side, a younger uncle, my dad's one of 11, so huge family. Um, he's one of the older, this is one of the younger. But anyway. Like the he, follicle count in your family needs to be <laughs> documented somewhere. <laughs> okay, sorry. Go ahead. I know, right? Anyway. Um, but yeah, my my dad's brother reached out to me and said, you know, he gave me some medical information. And he also said, and by the way, do you have any remaining embryos after you donated? Um, uh, because we're kind of looking at that. And so it turns out that they were our first recipients. Um
2: Um, and
3: so, yeah, we have this wonderful relationship. They have a a five-year-old little girl now. Um, and it's just, it's, we're redefining family and Mm -hmm. it's been really interesting. Um, we've also had another donation that didn't result in a, a term pregnancy. Um, and so we're, and we have a few embryos left that we're eventually going to be donating to another family. Um, but I've kind of been through, multiple format, you know, multiple matches, multiple, you know, kind of uh, arrangements because of um, the number. And and that kind of gives me a lens on, you know, what does this look like for people that do have a large number of embryos? and And how does that dynamic play out over time?
0: Wow, wow, wow. Okay, so let me ask this, I'm going to start with you, Maya, because I'm pretty sure Yours was an unknown donor situation, is that right? And can you just walk us through what that means and how it's a little, I mean, Jen and Gina can talk to us about how theirs have been different.
1: Yeah, I'll kind of piggyback on sort of the lack of education that Jen was talking about because I didn't, when you are in a really vulnerable place, when you have exhausted all of your financial, emotional, (laughs) relational resources, as you well know, you're just looking for, I just need something that's going to work. Um, so I think there was some, you get a little bit blinded by that mission. And um, when there's just a lack of education and information about the choices that you have when you're landing on a certain option, I think that can be really like a little bit of a challenge. But that's kind of where I found myself. I landed on embryo donation almost by accident, I would say. I was looking at a frozen egg bank and just trying to figure like, how do you do this, you know, and just trying to figure it out. And but I landed um, at a clinic that had embryos available, and um, learned through through that and found an embryo a set set of two embryos that I thought could be a good match. And it sort of worked for me at the time. Again, we're talking 10 years ago, things are really different. I'm really different now. But navigating a clinic based program means different things for different clinics. It often means that embryos are relinquished to the clinic, meaning the clinic owns those embryos. So patients, so imagine a patient like Gina could essentially relinquish the custody of those or the you know, legal authorization to those embryos to the clinic, and then the clinic can do what they want with them.
0: I want to unpack that a tiny bit because I feel like you fill out all this paperwork when you're going through IVF about all the things you don't think you're ever going to have to think about until you do. And I think they give you the choice, donate to science, donate to a family, discard. I feel like I've never even seen donate to the clinic and let them do what they
1: want with it. Well, so I didn't phrase that right. It's not want with it, but if you are wanting to donate your embryos to somebody else, some clinics um, will facilitate that. So that's a disposition option that allows the donor to just give back to the clinic program, essentially. Got it. The the clinic can't discard if they said they want to give them to another family, but the clinic can choose or allow a recipient perhaps to choose where those embryos go. Okay. So as we've been exploring this Space in this landscape for the last couple years, really trying to understand that model and parts about it that, you know, can be easier on the front end, maybe for some people, but that it can be very problematic in other ways. Meaning, often the donors don't get any say or choice into where those embryos go, meaning, there are some programs that the recipients may be allowed to have one chance or one embryo, but then other embryos are given to other families. So there's a lot of full genetic siblings, or there could be potentially large cohorts of genetic siblings and people don't know each other. Think about a clinic location. So generally people are maybe in the same geographical location. So there's just, you know, when when 23andMe and consumer at home consumer DNA testing really exploded you know, over the last several years, it dramatically has changed this landscape of third party reproduction donor conception and anonymity and even the term anonymity is you know it's not supposed to be it's still used but it's it's there are new guidelines in terms of language um and we just know that it's not possible to be anonymous anymore nor is it desired by donor conceived people for you know that that we've been really connecting with and learning from um, and often not by the donors or, or the intended parents. So we have this challenge with this space where it's not exactly what people want, but then also how do you navigate meeting new people that you're going to share your embryos with and have full genetic siblings raised in different homes with different parents? How do you make meaning of sharing genetics in this way? How do you understand family, you know, extended family? What do you call each other? All of those things. Those are the things we really tackle as as an organization because that's what these fa- families are really—I don't want to say struggling with, but um, kind of immersed in, right? And it's been it's been interesting journeys for both Jen and Gina, for myself with an unknown or a non-directed uh, donation. I've been navigating something else on the back end over time, and I actually have connected with the egg provider of, the, you know, it's, you know, so it's, but there was a lot of hesitation and that's its own. Jean and I actually just presented at the the seeds ethics conference and I, I shared my story a little bit. And so I know we're kind of at a 30 minute time limit and we could just, our stories take up like 27 minutes. So no, Totally. And we started
0: later. We started a little late, so don't even worry about it.
1: Yeah, but, but really, it's, you know, it puts it puts people in challenging positions when you have an unknown, non-directed, anonymous, whatever you want to say on the front end, and then you have a child on the back end. And that child is genetically connected to other people. And that child has a family genetic health history. And that child has an ethnicity, an ethnicity or ethnic identity that's... Maybe different than yours, you know? And so, really being able to help people forecast the future needs of these potential children and, and people and helping them make decisions on the front end that will allow the space and growth for both the intended parents, donors, and the, the children who are impacted by all of this. That's what we're really trying to help people do.
0: Jen, can you speak a little bit to some of the terminology? Um, Just even I should have asked from the beginning, but I feel like in my world, I've heard you are not supposed to say embryo adoption, embryo donation on both sides is the way to go. Um, I am part of an embryo donation Facebook group. And in the rules, like the first thing you have to check off is that you'll never say embryo adoption. So can you talk about how that came to be and if that's true and why?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think language in general in this space, um, talking about everything from what do we call it, embryo donation versus embryo adoption, to what do genetic siblings raised in other families call each other, right? It's it's There's a whole lot to explore there. Um, my favorite way to answer the question about adoption versus donation is in terms of what is different, the answer is... Um, nothing and everything all at once. I think a lot of people use the terms interchangeably Um, and they don't really know that term adoption specifically is very loaded. Um, I know the exact Facebook group you're talking about, because when I first started in the industry, I had posted something there that I thought would be very helpful. It was telling my story and I, I used the word adoption and it got pulled and I felt so hurt because I didn't understand. Now, that being said, once you really explore like the history of the term adoption, you will know that not only is, you know, legally speaking, adoption and embryo donation very different because it's a transfer of property versus a transfer of personhood. Um, But also there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of more Christian connotations, pro-life connotations that come with the word adoption. So I was just talking to somebody about this the other night that's going through embryo donation. And she's like, what's the deal with the two words? And I said, you know, our role is to educate people about, you know, we at Empower only use the word donation because we understand what that means. We've read the ASRM guidelines about it. And they, by the way, you know, say to use the word donation, not adoption. Um, So it's really just educating sort of the history of the two words and understanding what they mean and then choosing. So when I say everything and nothing, there is a huge difference, but a lot of people aren't aware. I don't know if Gina or Maya want to add anything to what I just said.
1: That's it. I think, you know, when you think about the genetic relationship of raising a child that's not genetically related to you or genetically connected to you, the term, it's closest to an adoption, but legally, psychologically, there are very big differences um, between adopting a child and becoming a recipient of a donated embryo, Um, not just the physical experience, but just also in how your family comes together. So it's a conceptualization thing. Um, I think what Jen was referring to that that can be problematic is, you know, especially in our political landscape, you know, if you talk about an embryo as if it's a person that can be adopted, that can be problematic, you know, just in terms of IVF and sort of the larger, the larger picture around that. About but it's also, personhood. Yeah. And, but it's also just a very different experience. I don't, Think of my child as being adopted um right. you know I don't think Jen or Gina thinks of donating their embryos as the same as putting up a child for adoption or a potential child like it's it's a very different conceptualization yeah,
0: Jen, yeah
2: oh. I, I just wanted to add to that too it's not only how we as the adults and the parents in the situation Define it it's also the children's identity so one of the reasons my recipient she doesn't at first she kind of used the word adoption but then she said i don't want my son isn't adopted and yes the experience can be quite similar but if he has classmates who were i want him to understand that this is a different thing so for the children as well i think it's important that we explore this terminology and let me just ask so like i've seen people post
0: we're seeking embryos would they say we're seeking embryo donation An embryo, like what is the right way to say that? If I were talking about somebody else, Maya is seeking an embryo donor, embryo donation.
1: Yeah, Uh, well, I'm I'm looking for embryos, but embryos are connected to people who are donors. donors, (laughs) So you could be looking to match with an embryo donor, connect, meet an embryo donor or donors. Um, but you could also be looking for embryos, and you know that will lead you to who's on, who created those embryos, and and whatnot. Um, but I think it's okay. And again, I think it's really hard. And I think you know how Jen is speaking about it is that we're really sensitive to different people's experience because people have different ways to think about this, different conceptualization. And I think Jen, when she posted once, felt sort of shamed in this group. That like don't ever say that. And you know, again, it's an education piece. Like people don't totally understand something so we're trying to educate people um but um but yeah i think i think every looking for embryos (laughs) looking for embryos do you know
0: what yeah I just
3: wanted to add that you know and I think the part of the part of the issue is um, that the language we don't have very good language and so when people are talking about this experience with other people that haven't been in the IVF or fertility world they're just trying to relate and so it's an easier conception conceptualization to just like oh we adopted when they were an embryo and so a lot of time and and it's I think um, there's a lot of reason for that I think that they're trying to normalize it in a way with concepts that people are familiar with. So we we get it and we're not like we're not like boohooing different people's language and how they conceptualize their families. It's just that we want to be really um inclusive of of the different experiences and and understanding too that adoption is a different Um, it's a, it's a different experience for the child. It's a different experience for the families. It's a different experience for, um, those that are genetically connected because, you know, we really went in this and said, I, you know, this is the best choice for me to donate my embryos as opposed to it being kind of something that like we, we really made this, this elective choice. And so we have a different experience as well on the other side of the, the people that are genetically connected to those embryos.
0: Sort of piggybacking off that, Gina, can you tell me why it's usually what are some of the reasons it's important for people for to have open donation relationships?
3: It's just what's best for the kids to be to be perfectly blunt. Um, I think our what we've learned through hearing the voices of donor-conceived people who are now of an age where they can really relate what their experience has been, being raised in non-genetic families and you know, especially in a, in a time where they were, they were hearing their, their parents were hearing messages from healthcare providers and stuff to that secrecy was okay years ago. Um, But now we're hearing from those adults and we're understanding that it's, it's not that they want to have some connection to their genetic identity. They want to have it integrated as part of their story. And they want it to be part of their parents' pride in them. Um, That is just part of their identity formation. But secondly, also for healthcare reasons, it's really important. As a genetic counselor, you know, I can say that family history and family medical information that's up to date is really, really important. And especially if we as we move into the next era of medicine where everything is becoming much more personalized based on all this big data we have from our from our genomic medicine, that it's just going to be so much more important for future healthcare decisions for those things to be updated. So having Um, communication between parties can be um, just really a better situation for, for the families, for all the families that are involved.
1: And if
3: I can just add a little bit to that there, you know, when we say
1: open, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to go on vacations together, right? There's a real spectrum of, I think it scares people like open. Oh, what does that mean? I've, you know, but it really is, there's a spectrum. Some people are open, just meaning we've exchanged contact and we just want to be, You know, if there's some medical situation, let's communicate about that. Other people actually do end up going on vacation together and they really want a connected relationship. But I think people need to understand that there are lots of choices within the spectrum of being an open or a directed donation. Do all those choices
0: get documented legally? Like, can you say, don't contact me unless there's a medical emergency? Yeah. And then down the road, is there room to edit that or amend that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, our, we have a fabulous legal advisor on our team. And I mean, that's what the legal contract is for. That's why, again, an open donation or a directed donation means there are legal contracts between both parties. And both parties will have legal representation to help them navigate that, uh, which is different than sometimes a clinic program where you don't have direct legal contracts yeah. between two people. Right. And so yeah. that legal contract is where that gets flushed out. What are your you, base level of interaction that you're open to. And then, people take that in all different directions, because as we know, this organically evolves over time, just as people grow, children grow, needs grow. And the experience, at least I can speak from the intended parent side, sometimes changes too. In the beginning, you might not want a super open, really, I don't, you know, I don't know if this is going to work in the beginning. I don't know how I'm going to feel pregnant with, and knowing who the donors are, but once a child is there, I can say from my own experience that the interest, desire, curiosity for a connection shifts or often shifts for people because then you be you sort of establish yourself as the parent, you gain a certain level of confidence, of bonding, and then you go, oh, okay, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I'd like to thank somebody, you know, or I'd like to learn more about, you know, what whatever. So
0: is there, can we talk a little bit about the financial component? Um I'm under the impression, and I'm not sure that I'm right, that embryos, you cannot charge legally for embryos. Is that correct? So this is so interesting because you have to pay for sperm and you have to pay for eggs, but you do not have to pay for an embryo donation. Is that right?
3: I mean, have to. I mean, sperm and egg donation can be altruistic. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's just that really the economic... You know, there's the there's culture. economic forces that have yeah. had it, have shaped what actually happens, and so many times gamete donation is compensated. Um, embryo donation, it's generally speaking, we say that um, embryo donation is not a compensated thing. You don't, you know, you can't. It's ethically very, very challenging to um, to pay for an embryo. Um, or to receive money for an embryo um, that said legally each state has their own laws and um, we can't we're not lawyers we can't speak to all of the state laws and what how might they might be interpreted but generally speaking that's the way it works and in practice is that people um, they can sometimes um, get, you know, store it. Some of their storage fees compensated if they've been holding onto the embryos and they they're in the process of matching. Um, and maybe the recipient will take on some of the the storage fees. Now it can't be astronomical because people come to embryo donation oftentimes at the at the end of a long fertility journey and they've a lot of times tapped out a lot of a, a lot of their resources. And so this is actually one of the most economical ways um, to pursue parenthood, infertility treatment, because of that altruistic nature, and because um, former fertility patients who understand that struggle are the ones that are donating those embryos. So mm. I think we have this real culture around altruism um, in embryo donation, and I think it it really is a beautiful experience because of that. Okay, one other really
0: kind of big topic, and you might all have different answers to this, but how do we talk about it with our children? How do you all talk about it with your children? Do you bring it up right away? What is that piece like for you? Each, Maya, you want to start?
1: Sure, but then I really want Jen to share a couple stories. <laughs> okay, from, <laughs> great. And I think she knows the stories I'm thinking of. Um, I mean, that's this, this is what I do a lot in my private practice. Uh, work with people who are moving towards third-party reproduction and really talking about best practice around disclosure and talking to children. We know through different data and research the best practice is to ground a family in open honest conversations so when does that start it starts early when children are really young and it's a growing and evolving conversation over time so we all have started really young with our kids our kids are really the experts on this obviously you have to be age appropriate there are some really great books out there and there's some really not so great books out there so but you know books about families come in all kinds of different shapes and forms and their, you know, family diversity, this idea around that, however, you still need specific ingredients to make a baby. And so in talking about that, sometimes the ingredients come from other people. And so it's understanding early concepts of genetics, early concept of connectedness, early concepts of being so wanted that other people were willing to help us have you, Mm. and letting that story unfold. So I started talking to my daughter, I made a little book for her really early, maybe she was two of, you know, photos of her and things like that, and shared very early that she was, I don't, what did I say concede, I, I use age appropriate words, but I can't now. I can't even think of what they are. But like, she was made with the egg and sperm of two kind people who were willing to help, you know, mom and dad have a baby because we couldn't or whatever. Right. And there's a special doctor. So there's, there's definitely, there's, there are more resources out there for talking to kids. We actually do a whole 90 minute webinar just specifically about talking to kids. I think most of the information out there is really about talking to donor conceived kids, the kids who are conceived through those embryos. Um, Not a lot. And this is why we did that webinar and why it's 90 minutes, because there's not a lot about how embryo donors who have children most likely already talk to their own children about those genetic connections and thoughts around that. So um, I hope, did that answer it? I mean, there's so much to talk about on this topic, but in a nutshell, it's really, you know, secrecy usually equals shame and hiding and that doesn't end well and kids are real sharp and real smart and if you can just create their narrative for them start their narrative for them so that they can expand on it and make make sense of it as they develop be there to answer questions but for the most part is just being really honest about where where everybody comes from and who helped who helped them get here essentially okay
2: jen let's hear your stories well, I think my answer to that too is it's, there's not one correct language to use with children. And I've really discovered that going through embryo donation with my twins who were five years older than my recipient's son. So I had the opportunity, you know, to kind of, and you know, we, I talked with my recipient, what kind of language are we going to use? Um, in my opinion, it I felt more comfortable with her sort of guiding me on the language she was comfortable with. So we landed on cousin language because, you know, she's in a culture where people call each other cousins. And so we started with that. Um, But when my twins got to be a certain age, they were like, why are we calling who like, why do we call him our cousin? He's not our cousin, like our other cousins are our cousins. And they kind of started asking questions. Simultaneously, the interesting thing that you need to do as a parent talking about these things is you need to teach children very young that babies are made in different ways, which, you know, there there are age appropriate books out there, thankfully, that can kind of help to describe this to young people. So I think that my twins were probably around eight or nine when I just really explained who he was, you know, this cousin that that we visited, because we do have an open relationship, we were visiting twice a year. And so I just sort of explained it like, okay, well, you know, mommy and daddy, we had, you know, two babies in in, and two embryos, I try to use correct language, two embryos, you know, in a lab, and one of them was frozen. And, you know, the two others were transferred to mommy, and that became you and It was amazing when I first told them that this other embryo that was frozen was, you know, this person because they immediately were like, oh, so we have a third twin, like, you know, eight, nine year olds saying this stuff. It's like, what? Um, And so that was really beautiful. There's it's also you just have to also be open to them telling funny stories um, around my favorite story is. When um, my kids during COVID were in online school, they had to do a project about what makes their family special. And my daughter recorded herself saying, you know, my family is special because I have a twin brother and my family is also special because I have another twin brother who was frozen in a drawer for five years. And mommy was busy to take care of him. (laughs) And so I really had to like write to the teacher (laughs) Explain the situation. And so it's so to answer your question, I agree with what Maya said, starting very early, teaching children that babies are made in different ways. Um, you know, using words like magical seed or whatever feels good to you using language that feels good to you. um, But also leaving children the opportunity to create their own language. Now that my twins are 11, they call him their brother, they feel comfortable using that language. I feel comfortable they've, you know, I wouldn't guide them any other way. And so again, it's keeping that open mindedness for what the future holds. I love this.
3: I have to just add that my son, um, he was the one that, you know, I really started my conversations with him, but he really, from his baby book, he had the doctor and me and getting my transfer as the beginning stages. And so we had always talked about, we needed a little help to have you. And we talked, because that was kind of the foundation for how babies are made is that I honestly think that he was kind of disgusted by the idea of sex once he learned that there's other ways that babies could be made. Mm -hmm, But we mm -hmm. talked a lot about we put the sperm with the egg and we talk about all that stuff. And so he came really from a completely like scientific background. It really was not shocking to either of my children that, you know, when we talk about and we needed a doctor to help us. And, you know, when you do that, you have sometimes you create you know, you create embryos. And when you do that, sometimes you don't have, you don't exactly know how many you're going to need. Um, so we just talked about, we had extras. And so we decided to share them with other people so that they could build their families. And I think because, you know, my kids really understand genetics. We talk about genes. We talk about all this stuff. It just became really a natural thing of like, of course, we share things. We share things that are important. And we um, and we also like, we when we make a decision in life, we decide how we want to do it and what kind of relationships we build with people. And so I just feel like it kind of became natural as part of our, our, our family culture to just talk about what we do um, when we have, I don't know when we have extra of something in some way, um, and also what it means to be there for people um, and and have relationships with people. So I'm like, it's probably important to her that we, you know, that we send her presents on her birthday and we talk to her and all those things. And they're like, of course, it it really makes sense. Mm. Uh, but I think that I think our kids are just they just kind of they they're learning a totally different ways way that families can be um, because this is just normal for them.
0: Mm. And Gina, while I'm with you, do you talk to your people about epigenetics? Is this something that's included in all of your conversations? And what it, can you give us a very brief yeah, description of what epigenetics is and how you might talk about it with your clients? Your
3: yeah, people? I mean, I just gave a talk um, to the um, mental health professional group about this very topic because it's so t- it's so <laughs> timely. It's really a buzzword right now. Um, you know, epigenetics is basically how our environment shapes. Our genes, how our environment shapes the use of our genes. So, if you think about our genes, we have the same DNA code in all of our cells, but our cells use those dif- that information differently. So, our brain cells will use certain genes, our liver cells will use other genes, you know, what have you, and. The way that's controlled is by environmental triggers as well as genetic triggers. So if you, you know, what you eat, your environment, like, you know, what you're exposed to will shift like which, which um, genes are used with greater frequency. So it's like sort of like bookmarking. And I like to think of it like a family cookbook that's been passed through the generations. If you think about it that way, it's a family cookbook and you're going to use kind of different you're going to kind of use different recipes maybe than, than maybe your grandmother did. Um, And depending on your tastes, your available ingredients, you know um, you know what, what kind of influences you've had in your life. So you might substitute in one thing for another. And so it's kind of the same idea is that you've had this, um, the gene- the genome is passed along through the generations, but then what you do with that genome, and of course you're mixing it with other people along the way, right? Um, but what you do with that, that um, recipe book is going to be dependent on what your environment is and what is available to you. So it's really the way that our environment really helps us to modify what we're doing in the world. And so it's, it's an important aspect. Now it's important not to bypass um how important genetics is though too. So we don't want to like say oh it's all about epigenetics because you know because genetic identity is also important so they're both important. It's important to recognize that it's genes and your environment that are working together that really make you who you are. And I
0: think I think of it in terms of your environment starting from the moment implantation happens because I think for a lot of people once they arrive at the donor stage, it's almost uh, a calming way of thinking to think that epigenetics will start once the embryo is in your uterus, because your part of your inner environment will be transferring into the embryo. I think at least when my counsel people in the, or coach people, we talk about that a lot. So do people, do you
3: guys talk to people about that piece of it? Um, I certainly do as a genetic counselor when we're yeah. talking about it. Now, I mean, I think they're on the flip side, people that are working with a gestational carrier that kind of like, oh, yes. yeah, it kind of might alarm them that we're thinking right. about that. And the fact is that the epigenetics does not end, it doesn't end with the gestational period. Like you're setting it up, sure, for nine months, and we, we know there's some mysteries that happen at that interface, at that time, where we are passing along nutrients and, um, you know, some specific, you know, RNAs and things that can affect gene expression. But epigenetics does not end. You have you're affected by your environment the entire your entire life. So the books that your child's reading, the you know, what you're exposing your child to, all of those factors are also going to play a role in how that DNA is expressed. And it really, mm-hmm. it's it's really not you know confined in that 9 months although the 9 months are important and we want to make sure we're doing you know we're, we have good prenatal care and we're taking vitamins and we're eating a good diet and all those things will affect the health of a, of a of an of a child growing but the reality is that epigenetics is a lifelong process we're constantly using what's in our environment to shape what what's happening in our dna
1: but i think Abby also what you're connecting to is maybe it's sort of the very first question you threw out there about my sister as yes. a an donor, and how this kind of all wraps in together in a way. Because in a lot of ways, you know what you're talking about and coaching people through or supporting people through, and they're accepting the path of working with a donor in some way, shape, or form, um, is a perspective shift. Is genetic grief sometimes yes. for people is a sense of loss, right? And you're looking for something to connect to. And so I think what Genus saying is yes epigenetics can be something that um you can consider and that might help people you're you're saying that you're it calms people and and you know i think contribution and i think just being able to have that connection it felt important to me i really wanted to be able to carry but i also know and work with a lot of people who who aren't you know and and so i think it's this overall idea of zooming the lens out and trying to see the bigger picture, trying to see, yes, all these different pieces contribute, but what is the what is the the real thing that you're looking for? And that's to have a family and be a parent. Yeah. And Gina's talking about the ongoing epigenetics is what we call nurture, right? Right, it's right. Nature Versus nurture. And so being able to create a certain sense of confidence to shift that initial perspective. Moving towards donation in some way is generally not expected unless you had an early maybe medical diagnosis that you knew that this was coming when you were going to try to conceive. But for most people, they land on third-party reproduction, they land on gamete, egg, sperm, and embryo donation from a place of not expecting that this was going to go this way. So you have to negotiate all the feelings, but then also keeping in mind, what is the bigger, what is the end goal? What's the bigger picture to have a healthy child, to be able to parent and um, to sort of expand your own concept of, of, of family. And so sometimes there's loss and you have to hold space for that loss in the sense of loss and grief, but then you also can embrace a certain level of gratitude and amazement and excitement and all these other things so it can create a little bit of cognitive dissonance when you're trying to hold these very opposing ideas and feelings at the same time but i think generally speaking you know there's letting go and there's accepting and there's moving forward and there's just trying to live life the best you can with what you've got in front of you (laughs) you know so um so i don't know if that sums some things up i mean it's really Unique and individual journey for each person who goes through this and has to make the best decisions for themselves. Embryo donation isn't necessarily the best choice for everybody, and we are very grounded in that. We don't push people towards making options choices for themselves. We push people towards getting educated, to sit with all of those feelings, to consider what is the bigger picture. Can you zoom the lens out? Can you manage some pieces of grief with pieces of hope and mm-hmm. other things, right? And so for us, we're really non-directive. We, we want people to come to the table with what feels best for them, both as donors and as um, as potential recipients. But, you know, I think when my sister first offered to donate eggs, my first thought was, oh, that's an upgrade. Like, my sister's a doctor. <laughs> like, she can speak three languages. I was like, yes, that is all good. <laughs> And I think for me also, I, I let go of my own genetics very quickly because I just didn't have eggs. I had to move through that phase in order to get to the next phase that I wanted. So it's a really specific and personal experience for people. But I think what our stories can share and what, you know, Gina does these talks about genetics and epigenetics, and we do a lot of virtual events, you know, through Empower and, you know, we on our matching platform, which is called Empower with Moxie, you know, people are there because they're getting educated about this. And we have links to considering this, hey, what about this? So we really want people to think about and make thoughtful choices as they as they move through this, um, if it's the best choice for them. Just in closing, the making the best
0: choice with the life in front of you, whatever that was that you said, it just brings me to what I usually ask people last, which is, is there any phrase cliche saying mm-hmm. that you carry with you day to day, or that's helped shape who you are, who you, who you are in your professional world. You can all three give them on if you have one. And if you don't, that's okay too. Like,
1: like our mantra,
0: either a mantra or like, just I like, always say like a reason, a season, a lifetime was from my fertility journey and has carried through to a million other pieces of my life. It can really be anything. Some people have something their mother always used to say to them, that kind of thing.
1: All I hear in my head is C-C-Poida,
2: <laughs> um, Love that. No, but Jen, Jen has I have. I yeah. have two. Um, and one is very close to what Maya just said. And that is that because I was really struggling, even after my decision to donate my embryo, to be honest, I was struggling with the emotions that came along with it. And it was a very simple statement that my therapist said. And that was, you made the best decision at the time with the information you had boom, so simple, yet I think it all the time and say it all the time. My other one, also with a different therapist before I went through my second round of IVF was what feels like a crisis to you right now is not going to feel like a crisis to you when you're 80 years old. Mm -hmm. Again, very simple, but I've, I clung to that when I was trying to become a mom. And I still, you know, say that to people all the time. I love that one. Tina, do you have Gina, do you have one?
3: I have a mantra, but like I was thinking of like what what do I take every day? And it's that this is a journey. This has been an adventure for me, like going through IVF. Like I, of course I didn't want to go through IVF, but like it opened doors to seeing the world in such different ways and seeing people in such different ways. And so I'm grateful that I had remaining embryos. I'm grateful that I was able to experience this journey, this particular journey of life and see the needs of all these different people and then meet these amazing women and do this. Like, honestly, I feel like I've just been granted this really awesome gift because I've been able to conceptualize a lot of other people's views in the world and kind of make space for all of that in my concept of family. And so to me, this has been a huge gift.
1: Mm, I love that. I feel like you guys are just so thoughtful in all of this. We've spent the last like two years Building this matching platform, <laughs> <I know. laughs> we, we didn't think even about, really get to. We didn't really get to it. But but it's you know it's an open matching platform where embryo donors and recipients can build profiles, connect. We facilitate match meetings. We support the whole journey. We do the logistics and we do all the stuff. But it just thinking about everything that has gone into building this and working with software developers and. Just every little piece. The only thing I keep thinking is not a mantra for myself, but what I tell Jen and Gina, and that is take your vitamins. Y'all cannot leave me here <laughs> like take vitamins. So I just I feel like I more dish it rather than think it. But but yeah, no, I definitely agree that there's just part of this that it's it's a unique calling that we all feel to be here, even when it's really hard. And we really get in, I hate to say it like this, but we get in the shit with people, you know, like this isn't a straight path and people are meeting each other and, Sort of, we talk about dating your donor or recipient. Sometimes it's a magical first date and everything's beautiful. And other times you have to meet different people and people get uncomfortable with that. And we're really normalizing the process of this unique experience where you're meeting people, you're trying to see what might fit right. You're trying to consider things that you've never had to consider before. So we get to go on this journey with people, and sometimes it's really hard and painful and and sad and other times it's just amazing and beautiful and we get to be there for all of it and so I think that we just feel a lot of gratitude for each other for making this happen and then you know we launched our matching platform in August really for this the second iteration that we feel really confident about and it's been super active and people are meeting and matching quickly and falling in love and we've had people transfer embryos already, you know? And so Amazing. there's a piece of this and people are coming to us wanting to donate with us because they, have they know Jen and Gina as people. We're not coming from this as, you know, business people. We're very good. Yeah, it's my gray hairs, but we're really coming to this because yeah. we want to help people do this and we think it's possible, but there's so many unknowns that people need to be supported through. And so I, I just, you know, I'm, I like to know what's happening next. I'm kind of type A, I'm a planner, but I think maybe my mantra is, you know, I, Gina has said this to me multiple times. Sometimes we just have to play in the sandbox before we know exactly what we're going to build. And mm. so I think this That's idea, a great that, one. okay, maybe we're just playing in the sandbox a little bit. And, um, and as we do, we're building what needs to be built, you know, and so, really good one. I love it.
0: I feel like we could do a part two at some point because there's still so much other stuff we didn't get to, but I love you guys. Thank you so much for being here. This has been such an incredible conversation. I hope it only continues. Thank you. And you know
1: we'll be back and you know we'll have a lot to say, girls. Can't wait. Can't wait. (laughs) We'll do it. Bye. Bye.
0: My goodness, I'm definitely going to have them back for another episode. I think there's still at least five topics we didn't get to, but I love when we get to investigate these pieces of the puzzle that we don't talk about or think about so often. And I will say, as I mentioned in the episode, you sign this paperwork when you're about to start fertility treatment. Like, what do you do if you get divorced? What if you do if one person passes away and you have embryos made? And you don't really think about the effects of any of these boxes that you're checking until they happen to you. So... Thank you, thank you, thank you to Maya and Jen and Gina for coming on. I love that episode. I was going to define gamete because we talked about it in the episode, and I bet some people don't know what that is. Gamete is basically just a reproductive cell. So a sperm is a gamete, and an egg is a gamete. So when you talk about third-party gametes, that's usually egg or sperm donation as third-party reproduction. So thank you guys so much for listening. As always, please share, 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 follow, 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 like, 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 review, review at Abby Feeder at the Fertility Chick at InCircle Fertility on Instagram. Please remember, you do not have to go through this alone. If you or a loved one is struggling to conceive, please reach out. Let's have a quick talk and see if maybe we want to work together. I'll see you next week.